Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the musical journey of an amateur piano player who's striving to play advanced level works one day, specifically Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which is where the podcast gets its name. Every week, we break down one of the pieces that I encounter along the road to this goal, ranging from the 18th century all the way up to modern day. We'll explore the history surrounding the work, examine the music within, and hopefully we all walk away a little more informed and appreciative of classical music. This is episode 22.2, the second episode in a series where we are analyzing a work by one of the great composers of the classical period, Joseph Haydn. Along with Mozart and Beethoven, Haydn defined this era of music and helped popularize the musical form known as the sonata. We discussed the sonata form in the first movement of the sonata last week, but similar to a modern EP, sonatas typically consisted of three or four movements, each movement tending to express a different side of the composer. While the first movement that we heard last week was playful and light, the second movement that we're going to focus on this week is more expressive and dreamy. And since this week's entry is a bit more introspective, let's learn a bit more about the core of Haydn's upbringing and what really makes him tick. Joseph Haydn was born in a village in Hungary on March 31, 1732, the oldest child in a family of nine. One is plenty enough for me. Cannot imagine nine. His father, Matthias, was a man with an eclectic resume. Wagoner, justice of the peace, organist, and a church officer. Maybe he wouldn't have to work four different jobs if he didn't have nine kids to take care of. Haydn's mother also worked. She was a cook for a local count, and was also a musician, skilled at the harp and singing. His parents would often perform for their neighbors on Sundays and holidays. Even though they couldn't read music, they were fairly talented folk musicians. Even from a young age, it was evident that Haydn inherited his parents' musical talent. During these local concerts, Haydn would often take sticks and pretend that he was bowing a violin. His relatives took notice. The boy had a good sense of rhythm, and one of his uncles offered to pay for young Haydn's education. His father, who didn't have much money and did not have any more time to devote to a fifth job, graciously accepted this offer. And so, Haydn left his parents at the age of seven for school, and he would never live with his parents again. This whole family of nine is starting to make a bit more sense to me now. Just raise the kids for seven years and ship them off. Haydn thrived in his new setting learning music, reading, writing, and Latin. One day, George von Reuter, the leader of the St. Stephen's Choir at Vienna, came to scout positions for the boys' choir at the school. During Haydn's audition, Reuter was mostly impressed, but he noticed that Haydn was unable to trill. Young Haydn responded, How should I be able to trill when my master himself cannot do it? 
Reuter was amused by the boy's courage and honesty, and he gave him a quick instruction on the spot, discovering that Haydn was an apt pupil. So Haydn landed a position at the Vienna Boys Choir, which was fertile ground for the beginning of a substantial musical career. Haydn spent every free minute he had trying to master every subject related to music. He sought live music at every opportunity, and he even began to try his hand at composing. He presented von Reuter with one of his compositions, but Reuter laughed in his face, saying he ought first learn how to write. Instead of taking this moment as outright dejection, Haydn transformed this embarrassment into motivational fuel. He wrote a letter to his father requesting that he needed money for new clothes, but he instead used this money for instructional texts on composition, which he devoured with rabid ambition. Haydn remained with the Vienna Choir for eight years, but life in the boys' choir gets a little bit difficult when one hits puberty. Haydn's looming adult voice was not capable of hitting those high parts any longer, and the Empress herself called out his voice as, quote, crowing. This put Haydn on thin ice with von Reuter, and the ice cracked when Haydn played a prank on one of his fellow choir members by cutting off his pigtail as he slept. The choir director literally kicked Haydn onto the streets. He spent the night without a roof over his head, penniless. There was no place to go but up from here. And that's exactly what happened. Haydn was taken in by a friendly benefactor who offered him a place to stay. He worked a series of spotty jobs, including piano teacher and street serenader. But it wasn't his street singing that brought him success. It was his adept social networking. His fortune took a turn when he met singing extraordinaire Nicola Porpora, who took a liking to Haydn and asked him to become his accompanist. It wasn't a lucrative position, but it plugged Haydn into a world of musicians and the social elite. He began to make a name for himself, even writing his first opera called The Crooked Devil, which was deemed successful at first, but then it was forced to be shut down for crude language. If you thought the MPAA was bad, censorship was real back then. This period of rising fame culminated when Prince Paul Esterhazy offered Haydn permanent employment. If the name Esterhazy happens to ring a bell, Paul Esterhazy was the older brother of Prince Nicholas Esterhazy, who was the same man that Haydn dedicated the Sonata in F major that we're featuring in the series. From this point on, Haydn was financially secure and was allowed to focus all of his attention to composing. It's a true rags-to-riches story, from sleeping on the streets to sleeping in royal houses. But even with Haydn's humble beginnings, he lived a storied musical career, and one of the many pieces that he wrote for his patron family, the Esterhazys, was a piano sonata in F major. We discussed the first movement last week which was a textbook example of classical sonata form. 
The second movement that we're going to talk about today is the softer side of the sonata, marked adagio, which means slow, with great expression. The form of this movement is less structured than the first movement. It's simply in binary form, which is a two-part form where the second part is a complement of the first. Essentially, it's A-B. The shape really doesn't get any more basic than this. But this movement is not intended to be complex. It thrives on expressive harmonies and dreamlike figurations. Chopin has not even been born yet, but this piece is paving the way for what Chopin would make a lifelong career doing. And no offense to Haydn, but Chopin's going to do this much better. These expressive melodies aren't exactly Haydn's strong suit, in my humble opinion, but I appreciate the roots that he's laying down here. While the first movement was set in the key of F major, Haydn grounds the second movement in the key of F minor. F minor, the key of plaintive obscurity. Deepest depression, lament over death and loss, groans of misery, ready to expire, harrowing, melancholic. Well, that's a bit angsty. While this may not be the playful romp that Movement 1 was, Movement 2 isn't exactly a depressing dirge either. The right hand plays a delicate melody, while the left hand accompanies this melody with a series of harmonic triplets. The melody explores several different keys as it progresses through part A, but it decides to end up not in a minor key like it started, but in the major key of A-flat major. Part B announces its arrival with sharp contrast, choosing to modulate back to a minor feel in the key of B-flat minor. Unlike Part A, Part B spends a majority of its time in a minor key eventually finding its way home to the key of F minor, which is how the piece concludes. This is the second movement marked Adagio from Haydn's Sonata in F major number 23 from the Hoboken Catalog.
Well, now that we've heard the softer side of Haydn, we'll close things out next week with the grand finale. I'll talk to you then. You can find the standalone recording of the piece we discussed today directly in the podcast feed. Check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for all the tracks heard on this podcast and more. You can find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and consider rating or reviewing. It's the easiest way to never miss a new episode, and it helps the podcast gain more visibility. Thanks, as always, for your time and your ears. And remember, the piano keys are black and white, but they sound like a million colors in your mind.